For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When I hear women today talking about the evils of the sexual revolution, I think they know nothing of history. They have no conception of what the pill did for women's professional advancement, you know, what it meant for women to be able to plan their pregnancies, not to be uh, sidelined by unwanted pregnancies, you know, not to have to seek out illegal abortions. I mean, they just don't have a clue what their own lives would be like. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Wendy Kamener. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's my pleasure to be here. It's great to have you back on. And there's a big issue I want to talk to you about, which is feminism. Feminism is something you've been thinking about, writing about, grappling with for a long time in your books, of course, in your speaking, in your civil liberties campaigning, going all the way back to the huge feministic battles of the 1980s between liberal feminism and authoritarian feminism. So you've been thinking about this for a while and you've written a brilliant long read for Spiked about feminism and its turn against freedom So I want to dig down into some of that with you and really work out what's going on with feminism today. But I want to kick off by asking you about the new turn against the sexual revolution. We are seeing younger feminists coming out. One book makes the case against the sexual revolution, the book by Louise Perry, which you mentioned. Other feminists are also saying, look, the sexual revolution was a huge mistake. The pill was a mistake. It's pushed women in the wrong direction towards bad sex and unhappy relationships and so on. Does that make you want to stand up for the sexual revolution and say, listen, let's get our history right. Some good things happened back in the 1960s. Oh, yes, absolutely. And my guess is that part of what we're seeing with this wave of anti-sexual revolution books is um, a confusion about the sexual revolution, the mid-20th century feminist movement, and the kind of, um, it it had various names, lipstick feminism, I used to think of it as cosmo-feminism, sex in the city feminism, that um, became quite prevalent in the 1990s. Um, I never thought of that as feminism. Mm. But that was what feminism looked like to, I think, a, a lot of younger women. When I, you know, I'm I'm astonishingly old now. I'm 73 years old. But that's what feminism looked like, I think, to women who maybe are who came of age with it, who are now maybe 40ish. And I think there was a real confusion, a real confusion about what feminism is and what the sexual revolution meant. I mean, when I hear women talking about um, the evils of the sexual revolution or suggesting that it was bad for women or the pill was bad for women, I think they know nothing of history. You know, they know nothing of what it was like for women to be afraid to have sex, 
because it might get them pregnant, especially in a time when abortions were not readily available. They have no conception of what the pill did for women's professional advancement, you know, what it meant for women to be able to plan their pregnancies, um, not to be uh, sidelined by unwanted pregnancies, you know, not to have to seek out illegal abortions. I mean, they just don't have a clue what their own lives would be like if, if, if there was no effective birth control on hand for them. I mean, maybe they're going to start to realize that now that abortions have become practically illegal in, in many places, uh, and the situation may well get worse. But, I, you know, I find it in some ways an astonishing and ahistorical turn for women who consider themselves feminists. I find it just astonishing. Yeah, I, I find the anti-pill stuff to be the most astonishing aspect of some of this commentary. And I do see that a lot among um, the British feminists who are writing about the problems of our time. And the thing is that a lot of them do pinpoint some pretty serious problems about life in the 21st century in terms of a, a general sense of unhappiness among young people, a, a caginess towards sex, a reluctance to commit. I mean, these are issues that it's worth talking about. But they seem to pin the blame on the sexual revolution in particular, and, and especially the pill. Uh, but it, you're absolutely right. You don't need to know a great deal about history to know that pre the pill, life was far more difficult for women in terms of the choices they could make and the options that they had. I think about my, my grandmothers, for example, who were basically pregnant all the time, um, had huge numbers of children and huge numbers of miscarriages as well, of course, and were incredibly severely limited in what they could do with their lives because they were beholden to their bodies and, and to their uh, reproductive systems. If feminism is turning against reproductive freedom itself, doesn't that point to a very serious problem with how feminism is losing its way in relation to the question of women having control over their own bodies and their own destinies? Absolutely. But feminism, I think, lost its way a long time ago when it became, um, from my perspective, quite anti-libertarian. Um, it became opposed to freedom generally, especially with the um, rise and the, the flourishing of the anti-porn movement. It became a kind of, in many ways, a kind of anti-freedom movement. You know, obviously not uh, not in every way, but in some very important ways when it came to speech, when it came to sexual behavior, when it came to the treatment of alleged sexual assaults, it became quite an anti-libertarian movement. I mean, you, you've talked about how uh, some of these contemporary feminists who are basically scapegoating the pill for the problems of the 21st century without any sense of history um freedom you know especially in these times uh, is is difficult to manage for people mm. it's very difficult to manage for people now we could spend hours talking about the reasons for present day miseries and we might begin with social media you know we might begin with uh cultural trends that date back several decades you know the it's overdetermined. We might begin with, you know, with a whole host of concerns. But the last thing that we should begin with is the sexual revolution and the pill. That's that's a really good jumping off point because I want to get into 
the ideas of the sexual revolution or the the fact of the sexual revolution, what it was really about and what its consequences were. So um, one thing I really appreciate in your piece for Spike, you open by saying um, feminist skeptics have discovered bad sex. And um, what one thing that strikes me is the way in which some of these contemporary feminists who are calling into question the sexual revolution, one thing that strikes me is they seem to have a caricatured vision of what the sexual revolution was like, as if it was full of women like you, women of, of your age and, and older, who basically fell into line with men like Hugh Hefner and other sexual exploiters and basically caved in to male desire by going along with the idea that um, sex should be easy, sex should be casual, people should have it whenever they wanted, which apparently benefited Hugh Hefner and Harvey Weinstein more than it did everyday women. But you make the point that feminists of your generation were well aware of the misogyny that still existed even when the sexual revolution had taken place. We grew up with it. No one was more sensitive to and and really more angered by the playboy philosophy, by the objectification of women, by by the notion that we should all fulfill this very narrow standard of feminine beauty that was presented in playboy, by the mindlessness of playboy bunnies. Now, who knows if they were really mindless, but they were certainly scripted to sound mindless. You know, there was Gloria Steinem, I don't remember what year it was, maybe it was the late 60s, sometime in the 60s, posing as a playboy bunny so that she could expose how abusive this workplace was. You know, the the playboy philosophy um, was something that feminists never bought into never bought into. And the notion that we did is just, uh, it's just nothing but ignorant. I mean, it's, it's, it's why I appreciated um, some of the comments of um, uh, uh, Ellen Willis's, the late Ellen Willis's daughter, who talked about her, her mother was uh, a very incisive feminist critic of the 60s and 70s who died too young. And she talked about, as her daughter says, you know, the the problem of sexual freedom for women in a misogynistic society. We were very much aware of that and and grappling with it. But it didn't mean that we didn't want sexual freedom. You know, it's a bit like saying freedom of speech gives everybody the freedom to say really dreadful things that that you may find socially destructive, that you may think are even, you know, have some long-term dangers. But that doesn't mean we don't want freedom of speech. You know, other people are always going to exercise their freedoms in ways that we don't like, in ways that we don't approve of, in ways that we think may somehow be counter to our interests. But that shouldn't mean that we don't want people to have freedom. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. And so you mentioned there Ellen Willis's daughter. So that's Nona willis Aronovitz, and you you quote her in your piece. You quote um, she's written a book called uh, Bad Sex, and there's a great line which I actually wanted to ask you about. 
you quote her as saying that um, the women of the second wave, the women of the 60s and the 70s, they were working out how to be sexually free in a misogynistic culture, which is really interesting because it does shoot down some of the caricatures that are being promoted by contemporary feminist skeptics of women in the 60s as, in some ways, almost like automatons or um, being brainwashed to a certain extent by a sexual revolution, which they witlessly didn't know was actually for the benefit of men rather than women. But it was much more complicated, wasn't it? And could you just outline a little bit what that challenge was like of discovering sexual liberation in a culture in which you were well aware, in fact, that misogyny was still a powerful force and and men still had an extraordinary amount of power in everyday life? It was, um, uh, you know, I don't know how else to describe it except to say it was very difficult Mm. (laughs) because um, we all, you know, we grew up being very well aware of our sexual vulnerability. I remember, I think I was 11 years old, the first time some really sleazy guy pulled up in a car next to me and asked me to get in. And, you know, I knew at 11 years old, I knew what that was about. I remember getting on the subway as a as a young girl, 12 or 13, and being ogled by, you know, these very creepy men. Most women I know generally will feel insecure going into an empty parking garage. You know, we never we never lose that sense of sexual vulnerability, which we grew up with, and which was not at all irrational, which was partly based on experience. And while we were grateful not to be uh, subject to a double standard, at least not to the extent that our uh, mothers and grandmothers were, and we were so grateful to know that we did not have to worry about getting pregnant when we had sex, it was still a challenge. Um, Certainly it was for me to go to a party and go home with some guy that you had just met. You know, I never really felt comfortable doing that. I remember dating a guy who was a friend of a friend. You know, he was not just some person that I had picked up somewhere. Um, And I was sitting with him on his balcony in a New York apartment, and he said to me something like, you know, I could just throw you off this balcony and no one would know the difference. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to act as if he's only kidding and I'm not going to act frightened and I'm just going to continue looking him in the eye because there's not much else you can do in that situation. I didn't really think he was going to throw me off the terrace. I thought he was just exercising some power and I realized that he was somewhat sadistic and I never saw him again. But experiences like that, um, I don't want to say they traumatize you, but they scar you a little bit. Mm. And so you're constantly trying to balance that fear of, of sexual violence and the understanding of sexual violence with the understanding that most men are not going to be like that, that um, it's good to be able to have relationships. It's good to feel free to have sex when you're with somebody who you basically trust. And it's just a balancing act. But that's what life is. You know, it's like saying I'm never going to get on an airplane because I'm afraid it might crash. I mean, that that's a choice that you can make. I don't think it will lead you to a very full life. So let's talk a little bit about creepy men or the problem of certain forms of male behavior, um, because you do 
touch on this in your long read for Spite, and you've written about it at length elsewhere, that that great challenge, I guess, that big question of how one manages um, the expansion of female liberty, which you and I agree was a great, wonderful step forward in, in mid-20th century Western society, with the fact that some men still behave in a certain way, some men are still violent and so on. Um, and I think the way I see it is that feminism has kind of got that balance wrong over the recent decades in terms of erring on the side of authoritarianism in its desire to control men, sometimes exaggerating the threat that men face. And now I think the new feminist skeptics have gone a step further because what they do, they ossify the differences between men and women. They bring into play evolutionary psychology. They effectively say men and women are fundamentally different. They always will be. And that's why freedom is a bad idea. And managing your sexual appetite or managing the relations between the sexes is is preferable. So is that one of the problems, do you think, with the various shades of feminism that we've seen over the past few decades, is that they've grappled with the question of problematic male behaviour, but they've got the solutions to it wrong. I think that's right. And I think it's important to know that historically, this is hardly um, a new philosophy or a new development for feminism. It, uh, it, you know, it's a callback to some 19th century women's rights advocates who viewed women as um, weaker, more emotional, but also morally superior to men. Um, It's the uh, revival of some very... Uh, long-standing gender stereotypes, um, women as as natural victims, men as naturally or at least potentially predatory, and justice for women uh, requiring not an expansion of rights for women so that men and women have essentially equal rights across a broad spectrum, but limitations on the prerogatives and privileges of men. One of the central conflicts, certainly of American feminism dating back to the 19th century, is the conflict between seeking equality for women or special protections, Mm. between expanding the rights of women or protecting them from, from men. I mean, you saw that very clearly in the temperance movement. Now, you know, there was reason for women to want to prohibit alcohol because it, it, it was pretty closely associated with domestic abuse. But uh, you can look at that problem of women being beaten and abused by drunken alcoholic men, and you can say the solution is to prohibit alcohol so that nobody can drink alcohol. Or maybe the solution is to expand the rights of women, especially the rights of married women, so that they can hold their own jobs, hold their own, you know, property, use contraception to control their childbearing, and divorce if they're tied to abusive husbands. Maybe that would be the solution. But it wasn't seen as one, you know, for a whole host of reasons, because if you go back 150 years, well, you know, obviously they were living in much more traditional societies. But I think that, you know, think about it that way. I think that's a pretty clear example. Um, And so when I hear women today talking about wanting to limit sexual freedom because it's so bad for women, they see the problem and 
they're promoting a solution that's going to make life much worse for everybody. That's really well put. And I think um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was in relation to the new feminist skeptics, some of whom you discuss in your piece. Um, so here in the UK, we have the aforementioned Louise Perry, who's who was on this podcast. We had a really fruitful conversation about some of these issues. Um, there's also Mary Harrington, who's written a book called Feminism Against Progress, and there's others as well. And one thing that strikes me is that they represent something of a of a departure because I think one of the problematic forms of feminism over recent decades, if you, as you've just outlined there, was an emphasis so much on controlling male power and male privileges that it crossed the line into coming up with authoritarian solutions to that problem, which harmed people across the board, men and women. And which was morally wrong, let me add. Yeah. You know, which was just morally wrong. Um, and I, I always want to make this point about freedom of speech and other civil liberties that we don't support, promote and celebrate them for only instrumental reasons, because we think that they're better for society. We do so because they think that everybody should have a moral right to be free, yeah. to be free to say what they want to say, to be free to engage in, you know, a very wide range of behaviors um, that, say, John Stuart Mill might have supported. Absolutely. It's a moral issue. It's not just an instrumental issue. It's a moral issue and a moral right. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I want to come back to that question of freedom and, and why it's so important, what it means in a moment. But in relation to the feminist skeptics, I wonder if you recognize that there's been a bit of a, a departure because it, a lot of them now, I mean, they continue to argue that there's a problem with men and they say that it's it's a perennial problem. It will always exist. Men are just evolutionary designed to behave in a certain way, to want more sex, to be more uh, violent and so on. So that, so they kind of fix those problems. Uh, and in fact, they go further than the feminists who said that men were culturally programmed to behave in a certain way. And they argue that in some ways we are biologically programmed to behave in a particular way. So it's quite fatalistic, partly as a consequence of that fatalistic view of the sexes they now end up calling on women to change their behavior. So they suggest that women shouldn't take the pill because then there will be more pressure on women, especially young women, of course, not to have that sexual encounter that they don't really want to have, not to swipe right or swipe left. I don't really know which one it is when, when they don't want to on their dating apps. That's been happening for quite a few years now as well, hasn't it? With new forms of feminism where it's not only saying, listen, men are a problem and therefore we need more social control, but also saying that women have had too much freedom. And so young women need to um, behave more demurely and to recognize the follies of the sexual revolution in order that they might protect themselves from the harms that exist in society. This too is a return to um, some 19th century women's rights activists. I mean, even Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, opposed contraception, as I recall, um, uh, certainly opposed abortions. And she was a woman who had something like seven children um, because making contraception available would deprive women of the prerogative of saying no. And, and you know, that's exactly what these feminists are saying today. Let's, let's take away the um, pressure to say yes to sex because you can have sex without getting pregnant. That just seems insane to me. 
I don't, you know, I don't, sometimes I'm presented with an assertion that seems so insane that I don't know how to respond to it. You know, I don't know how to get into conversations with people who I think are being utterly irrational. And in part, I think, you know, as you describe it, in, in part, what I'm hearing is also a reaction to this, um, you know, what you might think of as the hookup feminism or the sex in the city feminism of the 1990s. Yeah. When women were encouraged to, young women were dressing um, like sluts. I know I'm not allowed to use that word, but it was sort of valorized back in the in the 1990s. And the suggestion that it might not be entirely safe for you to walk around the city at night in a very short, tight, low-cut dress with, you know, strappy high heels that might not be safe for you which is just kind of rational advice, I think, was taken to be victim blaming. That came out of the 1990s. That was not a part of what you might think of as mid-20th century second wave feminism. And I always thought it was crazy. Um, You know, my philosophy has always been that you should only wear shoes that you can run in. (laughs) When, <laughs> and not because you're afraid that somebody's going to be chasing you necessarily, but you know, if you live in a city, you're running for buses, you're running up and down subway steps, you know, you're you're just moving fast, and you don't want to turn an ankle or break a leg. It's it, it's just <laughs> crazy, and you know, and this notion that that you can walk around half naked, um, and then get angry at men who are looking at your body. Well, you know, what do you expect? I had when I was uh, years ago, when I was in residence at Radcliffe, I had a research assistant, a young Harvard student who was quite softic. And she came in one day with a very short skirt and a very tight, low cut dress. And she was leaning over talking to me and her breasts were falling out of her dress. And I remember thinking at the time, God, you know, how do these men deal with this? You know, these poor guys, because if they find themselves looking at her breasts that are falling out of her dress, they're going to be accused of harassment or something worse. You know, that was another kind of craziness. And and in part, what I'm hearing is that um, there's a reaction to that, you know, dress more demurely. Um, and you might just say, you know, dress with an understanding of how other people are going to react to you. Um, dress with an understanding of what might be appropriate in any given situation. And that's got not, it's not a moral issue by any means. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a social issue as well. There's a, there's a social context to some of this. I remember thinking that about the, the slut shaming movement about 10 or 15 years ago. I can't remember how long ago it was where you had these um, young feminists, these young radical feminists who would go out dressed as sluts and say, don't shame us. There was an antisocial element to that. There was this idea that you could exist in a society full of all kinds of people, good people, bad people, interesting people, crazy people, and not have to think about the social context. You could simply be in any place that you wanted to be, looking however you wanted to look, and that there wouldn't be someone. Of course, we should all expect that no one would touch you or um, harm you, but there is always going to be interaction and conversation and people looking. So there was a kind of antisocial element, I thought, to some of that 1990s lipstick feminism that you were mentioning earlier. Well, you know, and look where we are now. In the 1990s, you had women doing, as I recall, they were doing slut walks, right? Mm. Um, Don't slut shame us. 
Today, we're not allowed to use the word slut. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, in, you won't see it in a crossword puzzle. I play these little word games sometimes in the New York Times. And whenever you put the word slut in, is it, it says, you know, that's, that word is not accepted. <laughs> you know, it's one of the bad words. It's an, yeah. I guess it's an S word now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Wendy, I want to talk to you about the question of pornography and freedom. So get into some of the stuff about civil liberties now and why they're so important and why you've devoted your life to fighting for civil liberty, especially freedom of speech. So one thing that does bind together, even though there are many differences between the feminism of the 60s and the 80s and then the feminism of the 80s and the 90s and the feminism of the 90s and the kind of more skeptical feminism we have today, there are huge differences between all these different movements. But one thing that the feminist skeptics of today, the ones who are turning against the sexual revolution, one thing they share in common with some of the feminists that you were doing battle with in the 1980s is in their huge opposition to pornography and their acceptance of the idea that the only solution to what they see as the porn problem is state control and censorship and effectively the obliteration of porn wherever that's possible. So just to kick off this part of the discussion, I wanted to ask you why you think those big battles in the 80s and the 90s between civil libertarian feminists like you who were opposed to censorship of pornography and other feminists like Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin and others who wanted to ban pornography, why you thought that was an incredibly important moment in terms of the development of feminism and the idea of freedom of speech? Catherine McKinnon and Dworkin um, developed this notion that um, speech they didn't like, what they might consider bad speech, was the equivalent of action. One of the most dangerous ideas that came out of the anti-porn movement was this conflation of speech and action. Because when you call any speech that you don't like action, you make it possible to regulate, restrict, criminalize it, and you basically obliterate freedom of speech. That was extremely dangerous. It was also, you know, they were delusional in believing that um, they could uh, somehow see the establishment of um, a regime that would censor pornography and that they would be the people who would be defining pornography. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I should make this clear to your listeners, I was actually involved in the anti-porn movement in the early 1980s. I was working um, for the New York mayor's office uh, on 42nd Street. I was working on early 42nd Street redevelopment projects. So I was uh, seeing a lot of um, really vicious and disturbing pornography, whether it was Nazi porn or nurse porn or really violent porn in these large pornography emporiums. And because um, I was always very sensitive to the sexual objectification of women, I think coming out of partly out of the fact that I grew up um, when the Playboy philosophy was so prevalent, and I remember being so resentful of it. So I, I had at the time this very naive notion that um, feminists could somehow talk about what was wrong with these images 
without promoting any kind of um, censorship, without promoting any kind of legal control of them. And one of the lessons I took from this, as the anti-porn movement pretty quickly became a pro-censorship movement, was that as a practical political matter, you cannot talk about the dangers of any speech. You cannot talk about uh, what's wrong with any speech without inadvertently encouraging people to think about ways of legally restricting it. You just, it, it cannot be done. So I was always very sympathetic to um, the concern about a lot of this pornography. But feminists defined pornography so broadly that it would apply to um, any image that suggested the sexual subordination or objectification of women. So when they put together these slideshows, they weren't just including images like the famous Hustler cover of a woman being fed into a meat grinder, which was really pretty disturbing. They would be um, including Calvin Klein ads. You know, they would be including ads in mainstream fashion magazines. And if that was your view of pornography, then you would have to censor everything. And especially if your view of society was that it's it's shaped by what you might think of as male supremacy. You know, it's shaped by um, the objectification and victimization of women. Then you would want vast control over speech. And they never really, you know, they, they could never really admit that. But that's where they were. You know, I, I also felt I, I did not buy into the notion that men who looked at pornography would inevitably become violent, that there was a clear link between, you know, what I might think of as really vicious, hardcore pornography even, and actual violence. I mean, all speech inevitably has an effect on people's behavior. That's one reason that we value freedom of speech so much. But that's not quite the same as saying that you know, the existence of pornography, of this hardcore pornography, directly causes violence. You know, the Supreme Court has given us a very narrow and I think a very useful definition of incitement to violence, which is that speech that intentionally, that is intended to and, and does cause, an, you know, an immediate illegal action. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's essentially yeah. what it is. You know, you want the link to be so clear and direct. You know, it's you're under my control. And I say to you, Brendan, I want you to go beat up that guy across the street. That's incitement. You know, looking at a picture that may affect the way you think about people, that may affect your attitudes towards sex. That's not incitement. And you might think of it as a social problem, but it is not a legal problem. And it is not one that is amenable to legal solutions. Yeah, that's that's very well put and very useful it's getting my mind thinking about various different questions on this on this issue. Uh, and one thing that you've just made me think is whether it's possible to be anti-porn, but also pro-freedom of speech. And not only is it possible, but but what would that look like? So one thing I wanted to put to you is that pornography, the porn industry has changed enormously from when you and others were having those um fascinating debates with Andrea Dworkin and McKinnon and, and other women who were in favour of banning pornography. Porn has changed a lot since then. I mean, I guess back then you were largely, you mentioned Hustler, you were talking about pornographic magazines, pornographic videos, um, sex shops in seedy parts of New York City and London where people could buy certain VHS videos of, of pornography and so on. But now, of course, it's 
very, very accessible. You can get it on your phone in 30 seconds and kids do that all the time. Young people can access porn very, very easily. Does the growth of the porn industry and particularly the ease of access to hardcore pornography enjoyed by young people, people under the age of sexual consent, for example, does that in any way change your mind about how pornography should be dealt with? And would you describe yourself as someone who's concerned about porn, but is more concerned about the idea that we should control it with censorship? How, how do you define your, your view on that? I, I think the short answer is yes. I would describe <laughs> myself as someone who's concerned about porn, but um, much more concerned about efforts to legally restrict it. You know, I would certainly have no objection to um, going after people involved in the production of pornography, mm. especially if they're using underage people. I, you know, I have no a problem at all. I would support um, efforts to stop the actual sexual exploitation of minors mm. to the extent that, that it was practical or possible to do that. But, um, you know, the, people engage in a lot of speech that I find socially destructive that, you know, and as I've said earlier, that that's, that's what freedom is. It's the right for other people to say things that we don't like, that we think are bad for society, that we think are maybe even potentially dangerous. That's what freedom means. You know, I'm not a social engineer and I'm certainly not um, very sophisticated technologically. So I don't pretend to have any idea how we should deal with the proliferation of internet porn and the easy access to it um, for minors, for young teenagers. What I know is that we shouldn't try to deal with it by censoring speech and images that we don't like. You know, in this case, I only know what I firmly oppose. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to deal with it technologically. I don't know how to deal with it socially. It's a huge problem. But, you know, not knowing a good solution for it doesn't mean that I have to embrace a bad solution, which in my view is not a solution at all. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. I feel very similarly towards the porn industry. I, I think it's a problem and I don't know what to do about it. And I think that's that's an interesting place to be. But just to briefly relitigate some of those battles of the of the. Uh, recent decades. I just want to ask you the question of whether porn is speech. So 
you mentioned earlier that one of the great arguments in the 80s and the 90s was between uh, feminists who said that porn was speech, it was a, the creation of imagery and therefore it should enjoy freedom of speech, and then other feminists who said actually it's violence, it's an act, and therefore it should be controlled by the law. Um, lots of feminists today, including some of the feminist skeptics that you've written about on Spite, um, they make a similar argument to Dworkin and McKinnon. They don't necessarily say that it's violence, but they certainly, some of the more subtle feminist skeptics would argue that porn is different to the written word and different to the creation of imagery because it involves people engaging in sexual behavior. Um, and the younger women in the porn industry may be engaging in that sexual behavior because there is a pressure on them to earn a certain amount of money. It's not necessarily something they would want to do. So it makes it slightly different to an actress performing in a mainstream film or a young woman writing a book or a young woman writing a newspaper article. Do you see that even if you accept that pornography is speech and should be protected as such, that it is a different kind of speech to to other forms that might seem more straightforward? Well, it's a different kind of speech because it involves photographing people who are engaged in what used to be considered very private, intimate behaviors, because um, it requires um, exposing people when they might be in some ways at their most vulnerable. So yes, that that is a distinction. That's not a distinction, in my mind, that should lead to any legal action against images of pornography. I want to stress that this, uh, you know, I talked about how dangerous this conflation of speech and action was. That notion became the basis for campus speech codes dating back to the early 1990s and to the conventional notion today that speech that you don't like, that you consider dangerous, is not speech, but, uh, you know, some sort of actual offense, some sort of actual assault. People who support some kind of censorship don't even talk about speech. They talk about verbal um, conduct. And that's a very dangerous kind of sophistry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that actually brings me on to the, to the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, because it seems very clear to me that some of those conflations that were made between speech and violence or speech and action in those feminist debates of the 80s and 90s, they really have trickled down into the mainstream. And now you go on campuses or even in your average modern workplace with its speech codes and its diversity programs and so on. And the idea that certain forms of commentary or certain words are incredibly impactful on the individual to the extent of possibly making him or her feel erased or uh, wounded or, or destroyed or their self-esteem laid to waste, that's become a very powerful idea in contemporary society and one which is very often the justification for new forms of censure and new forms of uh, speech control. Coming on to that issue, I wanted to ask you, just looking again at some of the ways in which feminism went wrong in recent decades. So you mentioned in your piece that um, one of the problems has been the movements like Me Too or campus moral panics around male sexual behaviour. I think it is worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, that although we recognise, and you've articulated incredibly well, that there is a problem with some men who do behave in a sleazy way, that there has been an exaggeration or at least a focus on um, the problem of male behavior that has 
crossed the line into exaggeration, panic, and authoritarian control, particularly in the campus setting, hasn't it? Yes, and it um, it's helped turn contemporary feminism into a um, very autocratic movement in a lot of ways, and also a movement that depends at least implicitly on um, very traditional gender stereotypes of, you know, women as, as victimized and men as, as predatory. It has a very simplistic view of sexual relations. I mean, one of the most telling quotes from Catherine McKinnon back in the day was, um, I'm paraphrasing, but only slightly, pornography is like saying kill to an attack dog. Now, as I've said several times, that's not just a theory of speech. That's a theory of sexuality. Pornography is action because men are dogs. And uh, that's a very limited, at least, view of human nature and human behavior. And, you know, the notion that um, this mantra, believe the women, you know, anytime a woman makes an accusation, it has to be true and the man has to be guilty and there's no reason to give him due process rights. You know, we saw the rise of kangaroo courts and a lot of very unjust um, convictions or findings of responsibility for men of sexual assault on, on campuses, on college campuses. And, it, you know, it helped turn feminism into a really anti-libertarian movement, which was very distressing to me, I have to say. And, and it also, um, it presented women as being so fragile and so vulnerable that, you know, anytime some guy put his hand on her knee or, you know, touched her in a way that she didn't want to be touched, that that was somehow traumatizing, that that was a sexual assault. I mean, if, if the women of my generation had felt that way, we would have all shut ourselves up in rooms forever, you know, 40 years ago. That just seemed insane to me. Yeah. That women were that weak and that easily traumatized. I mean, that was also taking us back to um, an, at least a 19th century view of women and women's sexuality and men. I mean, that was a call for a very strict double standard. Yeah. One, one of the things that really worried me about feminism in the 1990s and the 2000s is that, as you've just outlined, it was very often anti-women. I mean, it was anti-men in the sense that men were still depicted as uh, these rapacious beasts. And and as you say, like dogs who would watch a violent film or a pornographic film and then get ideas into their minds and, and act on them in a very automatic fashion. But it was anti-women too, in the sense of presenting them as these wallflowers, essentially, as, as weak people who required special protection, especially at university. And I wanted to ask you in relation to that about the um, the issue of due process. That's something that you've written about as well. So the way in which feminism doesn't only undermine important freedoms like freedom of speech uh, and freedom of association and the possibility for a, a, a new relation between the sexes that is a bit more relaxed and a bit more liberal, but it also has in recent years undermined due process, particularly through the, the Me Too movement, the idea of believe the women. It, it, there's a kind of naivety to that, isn't there? It, de it depicts women as these like almost childlike truth tellers who would never say anything untrue, who would never say anything wrong. 
Um, Margaret Atwood made a good point about this a few years ago, just saying that uh, basically making the point women can misbehave as well. And that's actually an important point to remember in the face of uh, movements like Me Too, isn't it? It is. Um, human beings misbehave regardless of sex or gender. You know, that's just part of human nature. Cruelty and dishonesty and corruption comes as naturally to some people as compassion and honesty and integrity. That's just human nature. And women partake in it. Women lie sometimes, just as men do. Of course. I mean, I the notion that we should have to make this point <laughs> that women are human beings who are are subject to human frailties and flaws we shouldn't have to make that explicit i agree um and i i see far more feminist value i guess if one can use that phrase in in reminding people that women are flawed as men are flawed than i do in this idea that women are innocent truth tellers and men are bad people, which I see as a very simplistic anti-woman idea. Um, okay, Wendy, I want to ask you about one of the most touchy subjects of our times, I think, which is the transgender issue, which you also touch upon in your long read for us. Uh, one thing that's always struck me as very peculiar about really contemporary feminism, the feminism we have today, and I've never quite been able to explain how this came about, but on the one hand, it springs from a feminism that viewed men as very problematic and needing a bit more control, needing to be uh, kept away from women in certain situations. But at the same time, that feminism has come to believe that a man can be a woman simply by declaring himself to be a woman. So you have this incredibly unsustainable contradictory process where on the one hand feminism still does have a tendency to problematize male behavior but at the very same time it is saying that some of those men if they so choose can literally be women as the mantra of our time says trans women are women and anyone who deviates from that can expect to be no platformed or blacklisted or punished in some fashion how do you explain that contradiction between feminism still having its its men problem while also welcoming men as part of the sisterhood in this slightly post-biological, post-science way? Well, as I, as I noted in my piece, that is a contradiction or a dilemma that rape culture activists can only resolve by ignoring. It cannot be resolved. But um, I do want to um, challenge the notion that um, it's feminism mm. that is adopting this, what I think is a very extreme notion of transgenderism. Um, it's certainly associated with progressives and with what you might think of as progressive feminists. But I think um, feminists themselves are, are split about this because there are still feminists, women who would call themselves feminists, I think with good reason, who are arguing for women-only spaces, who are arguing for a more moderate approach to transgenderism. I think feminism itself it's always been a very diverse and complicated movement, but I think feminism itself is kind of split on this issue. Um, one of my concerns about transgenderism at, at what I think of as its extremes um, is a concern that it is reviving very traditional notions of gender difference. Yeah. So that, as I wrote in my piece, you know, a lot of women and girls of my generation were gender nonconformists. You know, we we wanted to pursue what were thought of as male professions. 
we uh, wanted, we presented ourselves intellectually in, in what were thought of as um, male styles. We were gender nonconforming in a lot of ways. And one of the goals of mid 20th century second wave feminism was to dismantle these gender stereotypes and to say that women can act in ways that might be considered masculine and still be women. They're still women because, you know, we have a much more expansive view of womanhood. And I worry that that is being attacked um, by what I think of as the extremes of transgenderism when girls who um, want to adopt what may be thought of as traditional male behaviors, um, traditional male styles, are labeled as transgender. You know, there's, there's room in, um, in a notion of womanhood for people who are gender nonconforming. Gender nonconformity, from my perspective, was one of the purposes of the feminist movement, yeah. to open us up to gender nonconformity, to break down these stereotypes. And I, I see the potential for transgenderism to reestablish these stereotypes in a way that is... Um, very confining, very destructive and confining, um, especially for girls, but probably for boys too. And I, and I worry about um, teenagers, young, young kids who are confused about their sexuality, um, who go on the internet and decide that they're transgendered and, and without appropriate evaluation begin to be treated with hormones. And, uh, I, I, you know, I really worry about that from a healthcare perspective, but I'm also very concerned with the trends in the United States, um, to criminalize, uh, the treatment of not even just transgender kids, but transgender adults. Um, I certainly don't trust politicians more than, than, the medical profession in deciding how to treat teenagers who are depressed, confused about their sexuality, whatever their problems are. I don't want their treatment to be dictated by people whose um, incentive is appealing to a political base for the next election. And that's where we are now. And I think that um, certainly feminists who have long advocated for control of their own bodies, control of their own reproductive lives, who have long pressed to get politicians out of the business of um, dictating to the medical profession, should be very concerned about efforts to criminalize transgender care, even if you think that it is not always given appropriately. Yeah, I think the, uh, I was just going to say that I think your point about um this not being necessarily a feminist problem or a creation of feminism is is absolutely right. You know, here in the UK, the UK is sometimes referred to as turf island because we have so many turfs. A turf, of course, being a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. J.K. Rowling is in some ways the figurehead of that. She's someone who um, is not transphobic. All the people who call her transphobic are often challenged to find something she said that's transphobic and they never can. Um, but she is someone who believes that um, recognizing biological reality is important and that in some instances women need their own spaces in, in order to 
organize or associate or um, give out uh, rape and domestic violence advice and so on. I would agree with that. And I would also, uh, I would like to point out that progressives love to talk about lived experience. Well, my lived experience as a cisgender woman is very, very different than the lived experience of someone who is born a male and transitions to being a female, you know, in later years. It's a very different lived experience. We are not the same. Yeah. We are not the same. I mean, people who medically transition are a kind of third category from my perspective. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how that the worship of lived experience just completely falls apart when it comes to the issue of what I refer to as cis women, which is a phrase I really don't like. I know. I don't, I don't like it either. <laughs> you know, women, women should be sufficient. And, and you can see that in the way in which there's a real culture of erasure around some of this language to do with womanhood. I think that's one of the things that got J.K. Rowling interested in this issue to begin with, the way in which the word woman was not being used in the appropriate ways in health services or in social services in case um, men who became women would be offended in some way. So there's a culture of censorship and censure around this issue as well. The final question on the trans issue, I just wanted to ask you, what would be your key argument against the very easy, straightforward idea that a man can become a woman? That the, the crusade to legally recognise men as women, which would mean in some British context, for example, we had this problem in Scotland here, that would mean that a man could legally be defined as a woman within a space of a few months and therefore have access to women's spaces. Because one of the things that does concern me about the feminist pushback against the excesses of the trans movement or extreme trans ideology is that it is based on the feminism of fear that has existed for a few decades now. It is based on the idea, well, men are peculiarly dangerous and that's why we can't have the transgender movement. Do you think there's a danger that the feminist pushback against extreme trans thinking, even though it's welcome and very sensible and reasoned, which is very welcome in the 21st century, there's a danger it's rehabilitating and giving new life to some of the uh, fear that feminism pushed in the 80s and the 90s? No, I, certainly not necessarily. I think that, um, first of all, it is not simply a fear of sexual violence that leads women to want mm. women-only yeah. spaces. It's just a concern for privacy. I mean, I, you know, uh, before the pandemic, I, I was in a gym and in a locker room every day, surrounded by naked women. You know, I, I didn't really want to have to deal with naked men, in, you know, in that context, whether or not they called themselves women. And, you know, there are, uh, like, I, I used to go to a new beach every summer before the sharks invaded um, on Cape Cod. So, you know, I, I was never uncomfortable being around nude people. But I really didn't want an interlocker room. Yeah. You know, and, and I understand how especially young women do not want to have to share bathrooms with men. You know, I understand that. Um, there are, yes, uh, notions of women's victimization have been exaggerated um, to the detriment of civil liberties in a lot of ways. But notions of women's sexual vulnerability are not imaginary. And, you know, we have to find a balance between recognizing that and not making it um, a basis for the way in which we order society and not exaggerating it. Uh, I couldn't agree more on, on the right to privacy. And 
the right of women to go into a changing room and be surrounded by other women seems to me to be a pretty important one to defend today. Um, Wendy, my last question for you, probably too big a question to keep till the end, but let's give it a go. Um, I wonder if one of the problems in relation to all these things we're talking about is a, a misplaced sense of utopianism. So one of the points you make in your long read for us about the new feminist skeptics who are calling into question the sexual revolution and so on, some of them do seem to push the idea that we need to work our way towards a world in which the relations between the sexes are very neat and tidy and don't have as much conflict or as much regret or as much bad sex as they currently do. And they might disagree on how we should get there. Some of them think it needs to be a bit of an authoritarian crusade, control men more, encourage women to be more demure, et cetera, et cetera. But they do seem to have this view that there is a future utopia in which everything can be neat, tidy, no sadness, no regret, no loneliness, uh, no tears after a bad date, and so on. I'm caricaturing slightly. But is one of the arguments that we need to make is that freedom is messy and being responsible for yourself and your life and your destiny does entail having bad experiences and making mistakes and sometimes being incredibly upset isn't part of being a free person. A wonderful part of being a free person is that you are in charge of your life and therefore you have to take responsibility for the good and the bad as well. Yes. (laughs) That's my short answer. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think it's true, and I think I suggested this in my in my piece, that this notion that we can move towards a world in which um, sexual relations are respectful and everybody's autonomy and sovereignty is recognized and and we're all we only act compassionately towards one another, that is a very utopian view. And the problem, one of the problems with utopianism is that it does stand in opposition to freedom because a free society can never be a utopian one given human nature. And the other problem is that when utopianism fails, it often leaves people embracing nihilism. And nihilism is extremely dangerous. Wendy, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.